Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've now entered the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhagen and Al Warren. Good on Kingston. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. And we got Mr. Um, David North Martino today. Oh, it's my whole name. Yeah, we're doing Thanks it so. proper. We're doing it the serial killer way. <laughs> Seriously. You know, it's a dark week this week. We've got Satan coming in here today. Or, yeah, actually, later today. We've got, <laughs> today? Yeah, we're going to be talking Satan. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> that'll be exciting. Haven't heard from them for about 10 years. Don't know what's going on there. Um, <laughs> Josh Mellerman, of course, later in the week. Uh, yeah, it's quite a, quite a week, quite a dark week. Um, now, speaking of dark... Uh, today, we've got a couple of guests that uh, spend their life in the dark. No, just <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's introduce them both, and then we'll get into what, what, they're, what they're here for. So, um, uh, Mr. Dacre Stroker, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be re- reconnecting with my Canadian roots uh, uh, in this, on this imp- important time of the year. This is, this is the 125th anniversary of Dracula, and my buddy who we meet in a moment, Chris McCauley, we're, we're, we are stoked up. Sorry, I had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to be the first to say that to share our kinds of information with you and your listeners today. Fantastic. And welcome, Mr. Chris McCauley. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having us. Before we get into this, like it's the 125th birthday and all that, um, how did the two of you get together? Like what, what brought you two together? It's that joke, you know, a Canadian and Irishman walk into a pub. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was close to that. I think we could have. But, Chris, I think you're the one that really takes the blame for 
hunting me down because you had a really cool story and, and wanted to see if I wanted to be involved. So why don't you tell this I'm really one? glad you thought it was a cool story. I don't know. Look, I wrote that late at night. Uh, it was a friend of mine. So it was a comic, uh, a comic book anthology uh, that was going out. It was a horror comic book anthology. Um, the, the publisher uh, came to me and said, will you write a vampire story? And of course, you know, what vampire do you want to write for? It's, it's going to be Dracula. So I created this little story where um, Dracula was unearthed, unearthed by a Wayland Yutani style company. Uh, he was being tortured and they were using uh, various properties um, and manufacturing chemicals and, and pills and all sorts of things. Dracula gets out and kills everybody and then jumps in a spaceship and goes away, goes off into the into space somewhere. Um, so I'd sent a little email in to, um, to Decker and said, look, I've got this. Here's the script. Here's the visuals. If you don't want me to use Dracula, I'll not use Dracula. Um, I'm very respectful of Bram's, um, of Bram's legacy and your family's legacy. Uh, I studied at Trinity University in Dublin and used to sit, um, under a picture of, of Bram Stoker and, uh, I was quite familiar with Bram's works. So Decker sent me an email back and said, no, no, it's actually not too bad, uh, or words to that effect. And he was like, yeah, do you want to, uh, do you want a phone call? So we chatted on the phone and we come up first of all with an idea of a series of Bram Stoker short, uh, sort of graphic, graphic novels based on Bram's short stories. And then it kind of progressed then into this, this behemoth that is now the Stokerverse, uh, that's all things, all things horror and all things Bram Stoker. And, and the, and the funny thing is, Alan, is that he didn't actually have to do that because Dracula is now public domain. But when I sensed that a fellow author, an Irishman, a researcher, a guy that was paying proper homage to Bram and to the family that asked this. I said, there, there's something special there. And, and there is. And not only does Chris have an incredibly great creative side to him, but he's got this also re- respectful side to how to portray Bram, how to, uh, Bram's work, how to bring it out. And that's one of the things that I was thinking of. My wife and I run the Bram Stoker estate for our, for our cousins, Bram's great grandsons, who are elderly gentlemen in England and really don't know how to do that. And we've been thinking about how do we get pe- more people interested in some of Bram's lesser known stories? And, and these were his short stories. And, and that's when Chris and I really clicked it was not ju- just the one that Chris was, was wanting to do on his own, but said, let's collaborate. And, and Chris knew the mechanics of turning short stories into graphic novels. All, I mean, it's a three ring circus to, to get all these guys together um, and to make it happen. And that's that 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 first one did is called the uh, the squaw that got turned into the virgins embrace for obvious reasons that the name just doesn't fit in today's <laughs> yeah. time. But it, it's really a horror, horrifying story. Christopher Lee actually said, that, you know, other than Dracula, it's the second most horrifying story that Bram Stoker ever wrote. So we've had good success with that. And, and then we just, you know, keep keep going on from there. You know, when you look back at it being one hundred and twenty five years um do you do you think Bram would have even um, thought that, that that this much of a name would have come from Dracula and and everything he's done? You, you know, the the answer is I, I have obviously no idea. This is one of the interesting things that Chris and I chat about all the time, and, and as well as other researchers. Bram didn't really take much time in his life to tell us much about his writing himself. He was a humble guy, and he was also totally devoted to his boss, his master, Sir Henry Irving. He ran the theater for him. He ran his whole life for him for 27 years. So 
everything I'm going to be telling you, or most everything I'm going to tell you today is speculation based on all kinds of evidence that I found. So I'll, I'll just start with the first one. I, I think Bram Stoker would be uh, really interested, but not surprised, because he put seven years of work into this novel. It's the only one he really took this long to do. He left us 125 pages of notes, which has given us tremendous hints into his preparation, his meticulous research, the fact that he never went to Transylvania, but he studied it meticulously. He had maps. He had weather charts of all these places where he set the storms and all these other things. One typescript exists that Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, owns. And I've been able to look at that and find out what was taken out at the last minute, what wasn't put in. So I think based on Bram's approach to this novel, um, he, he, he put a lot into it, and I think he would be very happy that the story that he set in contemporary times has had a, a really weird and interesting effect on the world. I mean, it is something that, again, Chris and I talk about spirituality, the occult, Freemasonry, all these things that were high on the list of things on people's minds in London when Bram was writing it. They would have been the same people that have come to the Lyceum Theater. He would have known his audience, and he knew exactly what nerve to strike. But what's interesting, guys, is these very same things exist today. People are still concerned and interested about paranormal research, about what happens to the spirit of the dead. Is it possible to, to come back to reanimate, you know, even with present science as it is? So... And also to round up that question, he was the theater manager. Who wouldn't love a 125-year mm -hmm. run of something? I mean, that's almost better than Les Miserables and Cats yeah. put together, isn't it? <laughs> uh, just a little. <laughs> when you get to um, the, the story of Dracula, there's so many versions of it and so many um, you know, types of, of, of talk about it. What do you think the public gets wrong most, most often, about the story of Dracula? Well, I, I think that the biggest one, and, and there are plenty, but the way Bram wrote the story in the epistolary style made it very difficult to adapt onto stage and onto screen. But it was done nonetheless. So um, at, at the first point, when people go and say, oh, I know Dracula, did they read the novel or did they see a play or a movie or a TV series? And it's probably the, nowadays the movie or the TV series. And what has happened there is they have glorified and, and sort of, made sexy the lead figure, Count Dracula. Because when this was first done in 1924, when, when uh, Ray Huntley and then Bela Lugosi came on stage, you, you would be crazy to put an ugly, gnarly, zombie-looking monster, true monster that Bram had depicted onto a stage. Nobody would have, people would have walked out or they never would have come in the first place. They were looking for, you know, back in those days, somebody with great, you know, panache. And, and have a, an attraction. So that is what people get wrong. And, you know, I don't get upset about it. It's just different. You know, we, you look at the persona of Dracula and it's either Bela Lugosi or Christopher Lee or more recently someone like Gary Oldman or even Klaus Bang, who was in the uh, Netflix um, production. So they're, they're much more attractive looking. They're, they're more alluring to the females. As Chris and I will tell you, in all the products that we've been coming up with, we're getting back to the basics. We're back to the horrifying, true monster that isn't the romanticized thing that was created because of stage and screen. Yeah, it looks like you know. So you've got a sequel to the original novel. 
um, that the two of you've got. So let's talk about that. That's uh, Dracula and the Cult of the White Worm. So what's this all about? It's set directly after the novel. And uh, we looked at various characters that Bram had created, not just Dracula. Um, White Worm, which was famously sort of turned into this horrendous Ken Russell film. Fun, but yeah, nothing really to do with the book. And um, we started looking at uh, Lovecraftian ideas. So we, we put together, you know, how would Dracula tie in with the White Worm? And um, I realised that it would be very difficult to portray some of the very vibrant visuals that we would need to do um, through written text. So it was it was obvious to go with graphic novel format. Uh, there's a company in the UK called Scratch uh, Comics. It's run by a seasoned industry veteran, uh, Shane Chevsey, and he has access to some of the greatest artists known in the UK and US comic book circles. So I, Decker and I wrote the script, sent it to him. He get extremely excited about it, and it's currently it's currently in production. Uh, the artist is a chap called Chris Geary. He's been in comics now, I think, for roughly about 15 years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Decker and I have been looking at the uh, at the ink work that Chris has done, and it's incredible. So it's it's portraying just the right atmosphere for the story. Think, think of this for a moment, guys. If you think of the novel Dracula, and, and it was edited, a lot was edited out of it because Bram had written such a long story, and even 480-some-odd pages was was awful long for the day. So what Chris and I have done is is we've gone through and dissected the novel and all these things that were taken out were stories that weren't quite developed. Like how did Jonathan Harker get out of the castle? We don't know that. You know, how did Mina actually get over to to uh, to Budapest to, to, to save him? And, and what was that journey like? And then some of these other characters that Bram had mentioned in his notes that he, he didn't flesh out. The backstories of all the main uh, band of heroes. All these things were fertile ground for Chris and I to write about and to sort of continue with the story with these people and and their children. You know, obviously, this was a heck of a thing that happened the novel Dracula when these band of heroes with no police involvement, you know, managed to banish Dracula and, and, and almost kill him and, and get him back to Transylvania. So uh, obviously, you know, one of the biggest things is if you look at this and, you, and we said we got to justify Dracula coming back. Well, at the end of the novel, this is the novel, not the movies now, Dracula was stabbed with a bowie knife in his heart and his throat was only slit and he crumbled into dust. There was no wooden stake. There was no complete decapitation and garlic put in the head, just like Bram Stoker said you have to do when they killed Lucy. So we felt we had an open, an open window to continue the story and, without giving you guys spoilers, incorporate a return of, of this, this horrible monster to come back and do what he was planning to do all along, which is not just come to London to drink a little blood and, as Chris says, have a booty call. It was, you know, to 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 really take over the world and uh, get involved in politics and you know wreck havoc that way. I think the other thing is as as well is that you know uh, Decker and I have incorporated uh, characters that were originally in uh, the novel Dracula but were redacted, uh, and you get to see. A flavor of Dracula that you might not have seen in the movies, uh, and indeed in the English 
uh, translation of the novel, that Dracula was actually a scientist uh, and created various creatures, which you will see in this comic. Did you also um, pull in from uh, the novel The Lair of the White Worm, and, and what did you bring in from that? Well, we looked at, you know, this is one thing that Chris and I do, is that we've got to go beyond Dracula to get a flavor of Bram Stoker's understanding mm -hmm. of Irish mythology, his understanding, you know, our understanding of the darkness in Bram. And so you're right, David, this was exactly what, what we looked at is, and, and because I've got a, I've an Irishman here who understands <laughs> the mythology like, like nobody else, he's also got mm -hmm. a, a very interesting religious background and a background in Freemasonry that Bram did. Wow. So my writing partner was like, and anytime I mentioned something, he could go into detail. Oh, yes, this is this and this. So it was like, ah, the white worm. You mean that's involved in, in not only Irish mythology. That, Chris helped me figure out, this is probably what Bran was thinking of all along as the ultimate power, because this is, this is mm. real folklore. And also, sadly, guys, Bram almost took that story to his grave. This was when he wrote Layer of the White Worm, he had had a stroke. He was partially blind in one eye. Uh -huh. It was a favor to his publisher. And, it, and it's horrifying to think of this. You know, can, can you churn out one more great supernatural <laughs> tale before you go? And that's, that's what he did. He was in Cruden Bay, Scotland on his deathbed and managed to write it up. And, and that's why some people say, well, it's not his best work. It's kind of disjointed. Um, so, yeah, that, that, is, that was the whole idea. Is let's look at some of the other things and what's the connectivity of all these stories in sort of the Bram Stoker web, and let's reconnect them to what we think the audience would like, be it in Dracula or in some of our other products as well. Now, you, you've got quite a few different items coming out here, like board games and RPG and stuff. But how do you decide what direction you're going to go into with this? I listen to Chris. <laughs> no, well, seriously, it's, it's sort of a it's sort of a joint thing, you know. So Decker, Decker and I'll have conversations, um, and it'll be like, you know, well, this happened, you know, Bram originally wanted this in the in the novel, and I would take that. For example, in the RPG that's out at the minute, Bram wanted to put a psychic investigator in there. He also wanted to have a subplot featuring uh, a police inspector. We've put those into the RPG um, as play actually as playable characters. Uh, so there's there's a lot of that syncretism that Decker and I have where it's you know um, my concern has always been would Bram like would Bram do you think Bram would have liked this? That's the start of it. I mean I have all these fantastic ideas, but it's the you know is this going to is this going to feel authentic to the original Dracula? And now don't get me wrong, you know. We're not rigidly adhering to um, to one form or another when it comes to the stories, but it has to feel authentic. Stories have to feel authentic. So we look at the me media. So, like for example, the audio dramas. We focused in uh, with the characters of Dracula. We looked at their um, motivations, what they would have felt, how you know, what they would have observed. For example, Van Helsing to me is somebody who uh, he lost his wife, uh, possibly due to some manipulation of Dracula. Uh, Dracula wants his revenge on Van Helsing, so that's why he takes Lucy and does what he does to Lucy, because he knows that Van Helsing has a sufficient hubris that he will state, firstly, that he can save Lucy. 
and Dracula knows that he can't save Lucy. When Lucy dies, then um, Dracula also knows that Van Helsing has to turn to his friends and say, you know, Lucy's turned into this horrible creature that kidnaps children, a member of the undead, and the only way we can we can save her soul is to cut her head off and stuff garlic in the mouth. So Dracula's thinking that with that sort of horrendous statement, that um, Van Helsing will lose his friends and Van Helsing will be left alone. So that that's how that's we go in depth into the mind of the characters, and we look at that sort of level of authenticity. With, uh, in terms of comic book, it's very much about the visuals and the dialogue. So um, Decker and I have struggled, uh, have always strived to have first of all the authentic looking Dracula. It is very rare that you get the authentic looking Dracula anywhere. I think the closest was a Christopher Lee film, I think in 1972 or so. Um, but when we describe Dracula with hair, hairs in the palms of his hands, a guy who looks quite vulpine, uh, he's got a widow's peak, um, he's got a moustache, he's not a very attractive individual. When we describe that, most people don't see that as Dracula. So the comics are a great way to bring that original um, image back into popular. Sounds, uh, sounds like my form. co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've, got, we've got a video game coming out, and that's something that uh, is very interesting because it's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're taking now the story of Dracula and we're moving it on into the, uh, into the 1900s and into the era of World War I, and we're able to look at uh, what hap- what's happening to Mina, we're able to look at um, Mina's uh, children, we're able to look at Hol- Holmwood's son, and other aspects of Dracula mythos, which allows us to sort of push the, the story on a bit, but again, in a very authentic way. Like, you know, Decker and I think, well, how would Bram have injected these characters and pushed the storyline on if he had said it in 1911? So this is the game from Spacebot, Chris. Yes. You know, one thing about Chris is, is I think back to your original question, Alan, is he's got many, uh, you know, many hands and many fires. He's he's a, he's a game designer. He's a comic book guy. He's he's a colorer. So he is in this world that that I wanted to enter into. And whenever I come to him saying, as we talked about, how how would this part of the story work in a RPG or in a in a in a in a dice game or in a console game or a mobile game, which I know very little about. So I just constantly barrage him with, here's some cool story ideas. Where do you think they would uh, be, be best applied to and how do you reach out to you know a company a producer um, somebody who, who would you know publish this stuff create it publish it and get it up to market so Chris just knows that uh, how this whole work, thing works I don't I just know the stories and he helps me bring them to life well yeah I was wondering too with uh, with Chris uh, I was just wondering uh, how you designed that role-playing game did you have to um, create new rules where there was there like a pre-made system that you were able to adapt in creating the Stokerverse uh, role-playing game? Yeah, well, Nightfall, it was with Nightfall Games. Um, okay. I, I'm currently doing the, the Terminator games with them at the minute as well. So they have they have a, a skill-based system they use. Okay. Uh, they use it for their SLA industries. Um, so how it works is that I will, I'll create a story, uh, just like I would a, a, a short story, piece of prose. And we would break that down and we would gamify it. 
and then we would start looking at the characters. You know, what would be what would be a good character to to place in here? How do we make sure that the enemies are are crafted in such a way that the games master can um, create a congruent universe that feels mm. it doesn't feel disjointed, but has lots of different elements. Um, I can give you an example of you know. Um, how we crafted, for example, the, 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 the RPG that's out at the minute, you get to play as some of the characters from the original book. So, you know, how would that work? Why is Seward, why would Seward want to get involved again in a hunt down for vampires? You know, these guys are going to be suffering from some serious PTSD. I mean, they've mm. lost their friend Quincy and they've been, you know, and they've gone through hell. Well, what we did there was that we had Mina under the control of still under the control of, of Dracula. She goes missing. And then a lady in white is seen walking the streets of London with children. So they automatically think it's Lucy. So Seward thinks it's Lucy and Homewood thinks mm-hmm. it's Lucy. So that brings them back into the game. But it's not Lucy. So that's that's sort of that's how we how we do it really. It's it's thinking it up, you know, um, a story and then motivation for characters, and then putting the skill system in. And consistency, you know, with, hey, does this follow through with what that person was like in Dracula or in his notes or somewhere else? So we just make sure that they're linked, um, properly linked to the story. Now, you you found the Lost Journals, I guess, in 2018, and this probably influenced you somehow in a lot of what you're doing. And um, what did you learn? that was a surprise to you this was a this is a pretty substantial find so bram stoker is one of seven kids of the seven only three of them had offspring and only two of those lines of offspring are still alive obviously bram stoker had a son he had a daughter the daughter was married twice during world war ii both husbands died but there are two great grandsons still alive with with some of their kids uh one of them actually uh, the eldest had has inherited boxes of stuff. Some of the things they decided were better uh, put in to be put in the Trinity College archives. This is where Chris went to university as well as Bram, because uh, they've got some substantial holdings there. Other things they wanted to keep themselves. But funnily enough, they kept it, this journal and, and they lost track of it. They didn't really know what it was. And one of the reasons why is Bram's handwriting is so terrible. It was it was a you know 173 pages of chicken scratch, and uh, I was over there on the Isle of Wight checking things out because I was doing my research to to write Dracula the Undead, and I said you know I want to find as much as I can to understand Bram Stoker. Uh, I found some letters. I've been to Trinity College. I've been to other other archives, museums, and what have you guys got? And and they had you know th- interesting little things. But when I found this one, you know, kind of gnarly looking book with this kind of really dusty cover uh, and the pages weren't even connected to the spine, um, I pulled this out of a box. It was up in the attic and I go, holy smokes, you guys know what this is. And, and, and there was no specific dates on every page like we might keep a diary. It was it was really a journal where he had just all sorts of ideas that he kept. And it was between 1871 and, and for the next 13 years. So it was while he was still a student at Trinity College, while he was working at Dublin Castle as a civil servant, 
and and through the time when he started working for Henry Irving. So it was a really important time of his life where he was beginning to show an interest in writing. Uh, he'd already been uh, involved in the arts, which is kind of interesting. I was trying to flesh out his place in his own family of seven. Uh, see, my great-grandfather was his youngest brother, who was a doctor, and he was, he was very close with, with Bram. But Bram was not, um, you know, mainstream Stoker family. Three doctors, two sisters, the daughters were, um, were, were artists and, and one other civil servant. And Bram was sort of the one that had this, this leaning towards literature, but he had to go and work as a civil servant, which must have been drudgery for the poor guy. Mm -hmm you know, number crunching and detailing with the law and so on. Uh, it did actually help him later in his life. But what this journal showed me was a guy who was trying to bust out of a very confined and conservative system. And he was trying to, you know, flex his, his, his writing. And uh, that this helped me when I uh, got Dr. Elizabeth Miller from Toronto, who, who has since deceased just a, just a year or so ago, she was one of the two scholars that did exactly the same thing with the Dracula notes for the Rosenbach Museum. Decipher them, translate them, and, and put them into a publishable novel along with Robert 18 Bassang, a Vancouver-based Canadian scholar. So those two brought the Dracula notes to the world. And Elizabeth Miller, I, I co-opted her to help me bring Bram Stoker's journal to the world. And uh, really, it, it became the playbook. Guys, it was what I used. I'm a former school teacher. I could understand the type of person Bram was, how he'd look at the world, what things caught his eye, what things he, he connected with that he then would use later on in some of his short stories, some of his novels, some of his speeches that he'd give at university in the Philosophical Society, the Historical Society. So it was a really interesting glimpse. The Lost Journal of Bram Stoker, the, a glimpse inside this person uh, at this time of his life. Now, now, when he was a child, too, he was quite ill, and he had quite a few problems, I believe. What, would you, do you think this was kind of a basis for the darkness in his writing? I, I think it had to be. You know, again, he, one of the things he wrote in a book that he wrote about Henry Irving called Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving, he did give us some glimpses of himself, and it was it's very uncharacteristic, but he said, in my childhood... Um, for the first seven years of my life, I never knew what it was like to stand upright, and the opportunity to develop a great sense of imagination uh, was very fruitful in its later years. So uh, how I took that, and with Chris's help, we realized what stories children were told back in those days. And, and let me just tell you, Irish folklore and mythology was, was not like fairies like you'd see in, in Disneyland. <laughs> These were fairies and, and banshees and pukas and these were cautionary tales of, of you know, life-sucking forces, and, and they had their own version of vampires. So this, I am sure this had something to do with his very dark sense of imagination, and even it, it correlates to what he, that little glimpse that he gave us in personal reminiscence. And we also know, we have a record of a horrifying tale that his mother told him of her at the age of 12 surviving the cholera epidemic in, in Sligo, of 1832, where half the people died and numerous people were, were, were misdiagnosed and buried prematurely and, and crawled their way out of the grave. And I think that 
probably weighed very heavily on young Bram at the age of, you know, five or six or seven, that maybe he was going to be misdiagnosed and, and shoved into the grave. And, you know, that just reading it makes me develop claustrophobia. <laughs> um, and then I'm convinced that he was bloodlet. One of his uncles was a famous doctor that wrote a treatise on bloodletting, which I found on the Internet and read. And it told about how these guys in the day would actually treat people with fever. And, and I think that's probably something that they did to young Bram, especially, and I say that because, again, evidence that I've, I've, I've pieced together, he actually mentioned in Dracula how when Harker finds the Count lying in his coffin in Castle Dracula, he appeared to look like a, a, a freshly fed, gorged leech. So... <laughs> Yeah, does that mean Bram was bloodlet? May or may not, but it gives us gives me a hint that maybe he was and he experienced that firsthand. That's pretty interesting. You um, now, this is a kind of an impossible thing, but maybe you can shed light um, because quite often when authors write a book and put something together, there there is some sort of subtext, there is some sort of point to the story uh, besides what goes on on top. Do you think Bram had some sort of a I don't know, um, a point he was trying to make with Dracula? There was, uh, I, I think, I, I want to answer part A of this and let, and let Chris answer part B. So, Chris, get ready, because we've, <laughs> we've had this conversation many times. Um, you know, part A would be, Bram was a very open-minded person. He had people around him, Arthur Conan Doyle, Mark Twain, um, other folks... Um, in his world that were very interested, sometimes quietly, in spiritualism, in the occult, in the afterlife. And I think that Bram was, was kind of talking about Dracula as, you know, guys, and this is a direct quote, there are mysteries in life which men may guess at, which age by age we may solve only in part. And that tells me volumes about what Bram was telling us. We may not understand an afterlife. We may not understand a creature that comes and takes blood or takes the life from others. We may not understand the supernatural or people's belief in the supernatural, but there is something there that a heck of a lot of people believe in. In his research, he found over 13 countries that had some sort of belief in the undead, and that's only the ones he found. So, this was, this was at a time of, of, of a sort of a, a beginning of an enlightenment in, in British society. This is the end of the 1800s. The book was written to 1890, 1897. There was a lot going on. New science emerging. Electricity was being phased in and gas lighting was, was being phased out. And what Bram was, was telling us is there is some, you know, we've got some old supernatural, funky old stuff we've got to be concerned about that's coming from the East, but if we embrace a modern world and modern sense of science, modern understanding, that we can understand it. It won't necessarily conquer it, but we can understand it better. And that's why in his character, Van Helsing, who was like, yeah, he's a scientist, but he also understands mythology and the old ways. So the old ways aren't always bad. And as we look to replace them, we have to appreciate them and understand them and believe in it. Scientific science won't tell us everything. So, Chris, have I kind of teed it up for you okay to give some <laughs> of your take on it? Because, again, we, we could talk about this part for hours. Yeah. Um, 
I find Bram's work fascinating because I, I'm a fellow Freemason. So I can see a lot of um, Freemasonry in, in the writing. Uh, there's a particular phrase that, that's used in Dracula whenever he invites um, Jonathan Harker to come into the, into the house. Uh, into the castle, and that's used, parts of that are used in Freemasonry. Um, Lair of the White Worm has a statement, um, you, you are like myself tiled, which is a Masonic term. So there's lots of those little elements in, in Bram's work. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's not necessarily about conquering the supernatural. Um, as Decker said, I think it's trying to understand it. Um, you know, I'm I'm quite strange because I don't think there's anything supernatural about uh, about the world around us. I just think it, it just isn't fully understood yet, and I think that's what Bram was trying to get uh, was trying to get to. I mean, you look at you know um, concepts of vampirism; they're they're very old. Uh, you know, the Irish have some of the oldest tales of, of vampires that appear in their bogs, but you also have Egyptian uh, concepts of vampirism of Isis, who becomes a Setka. In her vampiric form, um, you have the goddess uh, Hathor, who was turned into a lioness by Ra, and she went and, and consumed the blood of people, killed them, consumed the blood of people. Ra took pity upon the world and then created beer. This is actually where beer comes from. Beer wow. that was in the form of red, yes, and then <laughs> Hathor lapped up the beer and then went to sleep. So there's a lot of there's a lot of old tales and you know. We don't really understand them fully. Literature always helps us do it in an abstract form. I think that was part of the genius of Bram Stoker, that he was able to take those concepts, abstract them, and make them into damn good stories. Every writer has a point to a story. It's not just cool. There's a reason why you write things, sometimes in a very subconscious way. And I think for Bram, a lot of it was to do with stories that he was told. Um, I think him being ill and being incapacitated as a young man had a lot to do with the fostering of his imagination. Um, There's actually particularly well-written bits in in Dracul I love that that show that, where he starts to have the imaginings and all sorts of things happening. Um, So no, that's what draws me to Bram's work. Uh, the, the, The attempt to elucidate the supernatural in literature. Your new items coming out. You've got uh, um, a war game. Let's talk about that. Where, where does that come from? So, um, <laughs> Crooked Dice are, are a brilliant company uh, that deal with uh, miniature figures and war gaming. And they have this concept called 7TV. And basically, it's like TV shows that have never been seen before. So the idea is that you would go down into the, into the vault of this TV station and find these little these video cassettes. And they're all sort of like TV shows that have never been that have never been aired, but are based on on things that have been aired. So uh, Dracula was a natural fit for them. Uh, they loved the idea of having this um, complete version of Dracula that's never been shown before, but was filmed, and that's the basis of what the what the war game is going to be about. So taking elements of the novel, Bram Stoker's novel, and changing them and and, and Placing, you know, uh, little game, little wars, um, sneaking missions, things like that, with the little miniature figures. And uh, Decker and I were getting an update today about it. It's very, it's all very exciting. 
Chris, isn't this this is the group that that used the students from Edge Hill University? Right. Is that correct? Yes, they use yeah. they use interns. They, they use uh, literature interns um, to uh, sort of investigate and research and look at the motivations in the, the books, and then they, they faithfully uh, turn that into um, the game. I was asked to, uh, to to put together a lecture for them, which I actually do all over the world. So Chris and I did one of these sort of Zoom things with, with the slides. And I have to tell you, I have never had as many high-quality questions, uh, feedback uh, f- after this, actually it was during the, the one hour that, that we gave to Edge Hill, and they've invited me to come back sometime in the fall to follow up. So what I think is cool, having been a a high school teacher myself, is how this company is actually utilizing university students, interns, as Chris said, um, to get some really fresh ideas, you know, great young thinkers uh, to to get integrated into making these stories with us. So, uh, yeah, we're we're thrilled to death to be working with them. You've got uh, two of your own books out, and when when we think about that, what got you interested in actually putting these books out? And I would say... Coming from your family history with Bram, didn't you feel a great deal of pressure uh, on doing such things, like to, to release your own books in the same in the same subject or area? <laughs> well, y- yes. Um, I, my standard answer, and then I'll give you the, <laughs> the inside scoop, is you know being being a being a stoker and being related to to bram stoker it does open up a lot of doors you know you, you it, it, it as anyone will tell you trying to publish something traditionally these days with a big a big publisher you've got to stand in line you've got to you know the stars have to align to get that manuscript into somebody's hand to get them to look at and it goes up the chain and finally get to somebody who you know realizes this is this is this is worthy of this particular publishing company and and uh, the name helped, but also what what I found quickly was if if you don't live up to that name, the door will be slammed awful quickly, and in in a more merciful manner by the reviewers, and especially not just the professional reviewers, but by by the general public on on Amazon and, and Goodreads and so on, they they will generally look at somebody. Oh, he's he's just trying to capitalize on his family's name. And, you know, to, to me, that was disheartening because I was coming out of my comfort zone in both cases, writing Dracula of the Undead with, with Ian Holt and having Alexander Gallant as our historic researcher. You know, that was the labor for me to hold up my end, to do the research, to be able to provide information to these guys, to write some of the passages myself, text blocks and so on, to depict Bram Stoker, how he can be inserted into the continuation of Dracula. And and then, you know, that was 2009, and then I learned an awful lot uh, going forward for writing Dracul with J.D. Barker is, number one, we needed to write it in the epistolary style, mm. which Dracula was written that way. We didn't do The Undead that way. And so I, I, in finding J.D., that was gold because he, he could write that way. But we also made sure that I said, darn it, I'm going to be beyond reproach. You know, I, I take it personally, which I shouldn't, and most authors should not, when you see these reviewers go, oh, he's just capitalizing on the name. He's, he should be crucified at the next family gathering, you know, stuff like that if they don't like what you're writing. And, and, and so I think as a result, 
you know, we wrote a pretty darn good book and it was, a, you know, one of the top five in the country. It was the top, you know, in the U.S. It was the top selling horror hardcover in England. It's It's been optioned by Paramount. Uh, and, and it's a prequel to Dracula. So, you know, as I said, it can be a blessing and a, and a curse. It gets you in the door, but it doesn't guarantee success. And it actually, I think, makes people look at the work a little bit harder and, 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 and rake you over the coals if they don't like it. Well, I think you also found it, you know, extremely important to, um, from what I was reading, to, to get Dracula back associated to um, the Stoker family name. Yeah, you're right, David. It, it, although it's already public domain, mm. but I still wanted to have something that was, you know, Stoker-esque about it. Uh, plus the fact that with each of these different writers, uh, all the research that I did, I found bits and pieces that have helped me, me and Chris. Some of the things we didn't put into these novels, but I found so many interesting little snippets mm. that yeah. didn't make it into Dracula or things about Bran that could be integrated in these two stories but I wanted those things associated with Dracula, things that were connected to the family and Bram's original research. And, heck, in Dracul, I've got some of his own brothers and sisters in the story. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Bring some of those guys to life. Because, for instance, I knew darn well that Bram Stoker's eldest brother, who was a very famous medical doctor, who was knighted, Sir William Thornley Stoker, did all of the um, medical... Um, the, the, the medical advice to Bram uh, during this story, you know, the, the brain surgery on Renfield, the bloodletting and so on, the type of instruments to use. So by golly, he was going to be a character in this story, as was his sister, who I'm sure the Bram kind of merged his mother and his sister to create Mina. So uh -huh. these, that's why I felt that Stokers had to get back involved in, in this, this effort. So let's talk about um, how people get a hold of you guys or how they find all these new products and stuff. So uh, let's start with uh, Chris. Now, how, how do people find you? Pretty much anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so, address, phone um, number, like what's... <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we've got, we've got Stokerverse um, Facebook group. We've also got Stoker Macaulay Facebook group. Um, we've got our, uh, I've got a website, uh, dark-legacies.com, uh, for all the other bits and pieces that I'm doing. Um, yeah, so that's how you get a hold of, that's how you get a hold of me. And I can be found, you know, same pages, Facebook pages, Chris haven't, and I've got Dacre Stoker author on Facebook, and then I've got dacrestoker.com website, and then my wife and I run bramstokerestate.com, which actually has all the books that, that have been published and any of the products like the Bram Stoker bobblehead and other cool products are all in the signature store at the bramstokerestate.com. And we also have um, you know, information that people loan us about Bram Stoker uh, that we want to share the world, other researchers that have found cool things. So we're all into sharing, but also selling stuff as well. What's your most exciting product for you coming out? Like what's, what are you looking forward to the most? Ah, oh, well, just going into these new games that Chris is talking about. I mean, the RPG game is great. I mean, I, I have, I've yet to play one. I guarantee you I'm going to play one of these RPG games. But I also really like, as you can see on my behind me, you can't see it, but guys, trust me, I've got these little miniature figures I love to correct. Yeah. So the crooked dice stuff, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and I've turned into a bit of a junkie when it comes to the comic books and graphic novels. So all that stuff, just line me up. I'm going to be like a kid, you know, go, going out to the, the store just like my grandson who wanted to come in and hang out with his grandfather here is like, I want to see all this. 
you know, literature is great, and I love getting into a book, but I also love all the cool ephemera and stuff that goes with it, all the games and things as well. I'm looking forward to it. And, of course, 125, May 26th, you know, I'm going to be in Cruden Day, Scotland, you know, celebrating the place where Bram Stoker wrote the novel with a civic reception put on by the, the Aberdeenshire City Council. And, Chris, what are you looking forward to? Um, all of it. <laughs> it's, it's strange because I'm sort of at the I'm sort of the cool face of this, um, managing all the various companies and 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 all the things going on. But um, I think everything's very exciting. Everything that Decker talked about, and then you know the video game for me, it, it's a fascinating process. Uh, it's going to be done in a sort of a Castlevania action style, and uh, yeah, that's that that's something that I'm um, really interested in because I think. I, I love the fact that people will be able to play um, a part, I have to be careful what I say, but a part <laughs> of the original novel that was not published wow. as, a, as a prologue to the game and then continue on the adventures of uh, the characters of Bram Stoker in the, in the main game. So I don't know if you guys have ever played Castlevania, but that's pretty much what we have in, in store wow. for people. Well, that's something to look forward to. We've got lots of activity coming up. So, of course, we'll have everything up on our website, and everyone can find you easily that way with one click. And, uh, again, it's been a real pleasure and, and a thrill, and we thank you for coming on the show. Celebrate your 125th birthday. <laughs> Do I look I that old? Say, <laughs> you know, you're doing pretty good for 125, you know, but that's that that's all that blood drinking. Yeah. It is. It's the it's the lack of sunlight and the blood drinking. Well, Chris is the vampire in the group. I'll tell you, the guy never sleeps, and, he, and, he, and he, he's uncanny with all these things he understands. He's got the power of ten men and the intelligence of it as well. So, guys, thank you so much for having us on. Appreciate thank you. It. Yes, thank you. Thank you, folks. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.